Hello and thank you for joining us for week three of Pieces, the Book of Job. The six-week series serves as a snapshot to the entire book of Job, providing comfort and encouragement to anyone experiencing a difficult circumstance. Have you ever felt broken? Have you ever wondered why things happened the way they did? Many of us have thoughts just like this. The reality is Job's story is often our story. Yet in the midst of pain and suffering, we can trust in the power of God. So just an opening question is, what is an example of an unhelpful cliche that you have said to a hurting person? This could be things like, whenever God closes a door, he opens a window. Uh, or the classic, God will never give you more than you can handle type stuff. The second question is, when you are hurting, do you tend to isolate yourself or reach out to others more? The third question for us to think about is, how did Jesus model for us a way to help others in grief? And lastly, have you ever experienced a friend coming alongside you in a hard time that made a real impact on your ability to walk through it? So our text for this study is going to be in Job 16. It's going to also be in Job chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Job chapters 4 and 5, chapter 8, chapter 11, and chapter 15. We're only going to read a few of these as it's a lot of scripture. Uh, you can read through Job 2, uh, 8 through 10, 4 through 5, and 8, 11, and 15 on your own, but we're just going to read a few uh, just for purposes, again, of the study. Job 2, 8 through 10 out of the New Living Translation says, Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all of this, Job said nothing wrong. And then also turn over to Job 16, and we're going to be reading through verses 1 through 11, also out of the New Living Translation. It says this, Then Job spoke again, I have heard all this before. What miserable comforters you are. Will you ever stop blowing hot air? What makes you keep on talking? I could say the same things to you if you were in my place. I could spout off criticism and shake my head at you. But if it were me, I would encourage you. I would try to take away your grief. Instead, I suffer if I defend myself, and I suffer no less if I refuse to speak. O oh God, why do you look down upon me and have devastated my family? As if to prove I have sinned, you have reduced me to nothing but skin and bones. My God flesh testifies against me. Verse 9. God hates me and angrily tears me apart. He snaps his teeth at me and pierces me with his eyes. People jeer and laugh at me. They slap my cheek in contempt. A mob gathers against me. God has handed me over to sinners, and he has tossed me into the hands of the wicked. And if you hear that, you're thinking, what scripture do we have before us today? This is this is kind of crazy stuff here. Um, it's also exciting stuff, right? We see some unsupportive friends. We see a guy in grief on the worst days of his life. And as we read through this, we try to put ourselves in Job's shoes a little bit and think, have we ever been in this space before? And for listeners out there, I really hope you haven't been in this space because this is a very 
bad space we see in Scripture. But it's in these sections that we see Job's friends start to attempt to answer the question, Is God just? The book of Job asks the crucial question of whether or not God is just, or more accurately, whether or not God acts within our strict human principle of just retribution. We see here that Job is a man who is called blameless. He is a loyal servant of God, yet he, uh, God allows him to go through unimaginable suffering, losing his family, his land, and everything he values. Satan is given margin to harp everything that Job has except his life. So in an attempt to support Job, his friends are quick to explain that he must have done something wrong to deserve this misfortune. And Job himself begins to question God's justice. The questions sound like this, why am I being made to suffer like this? And if we're honest, these are questions that we often ask in life too. But God's response to Job is super surprising. It also illustrates how little Job understands about the universe that God commands. Yet God also makes clear to Job that despite humanity's brief time on earth, God still deeply cares for individual lives. And as we see in the book of Job, God still cares for Job. It is in verse 2 that we see something really interesting. This is that scripture we read earlier about Job and his wife. But Job's wife asked Job to curse God. This is not really something that we see as a, is something that would come from a very supportive spouse, right? And then later in Job, we see that these three friends arrive on the scene. And they happen to actually be the best of ancient, uh, really Eastern thought. These are the top guys in all of their fields. And here's their names. Their names are Ephipaz, the Terminite, Bildad, the Shumite, and Zophar, the Nahamite. And in the beginning, it seems that Job's friends are trying to provide him counsel, assistance, and wisdom. It's also important for us to remember before we go any further in the story that all the characters in the book of Job are non-Jewish, which is super interesting and unique to this book. But it is also important that the entire argument of the book of Job is centered on a debate on whether God is truly just and good. And the book points out that if God is just and good, how can people like Job, who are righteous, suffer? So Job and his friends hold some unexamined assumptions about what God's justice ought and should look like. They believe that every event in the universe follows this strict principle of what goes around comes around, or karma. Or even, good produces good and bad produces bad. In Christianity, it can kind of sound like this. If you do good things for God, God will reward you. If you're evil and you're selfish, bad things will happen to you and God will punish you. But Job's constant argument in the book is that he's innocent. Now, here's what's super interesting, unlike probably most of us. That in chapter 2, we actually know that this is actually true. That God himself said that Job was righteous and blameless. Therefore, the only conclusion that we and Job can draw is that God doesn't run the world the way we would run it. That God doesn't run the world according to justice. And Job even comes about halfway in the book and says that 
Maybe God himself is not just. So as we see the friends in their dialogue, they begin to differ with Job. They argue that God is just and that God always runs the world by the principle of justice. And this is why they accuse Job of concluding that he must have done something really, really bad to merit this kind of suffering. They even start making up sins that are hypothetical that Job must have committed. But Job will eventually get so fed up with these friends that he stops talking to them. And he says, I'm not talking to you anymore. I'm going to go talk about this with God. I'm taking it up with him. So he gets fed up and leaves. And this is where things get even more interesting. Job begins his emotional roller coaster in outburst. And he accuses God of being everything from a bully to once he actually says that God orchestrated the entire injustice of the world. And this will eventually scare Job so he backs off and says that God must be just and all-powerful. So we're at this part in Scripture saying, Hey, nice save, Job. Good job. But when he finally reaches the end of himself, he makes one final statement about his innocence. And Job concludes by demanding that God show up personally and explain himself. And this is when we say, Wow, you are one brave soul. But how could this have ever been the place. I mean, we have to ask, how did Job ever get here? How do we ever get here? Why do we ask these questions? So I want you to consider again the first question asked in the series in the first part of this lesson, and that is, what is an example of an unhelpful cliche to say to a hurting person? And here's just a few. The first one is, God will never give you more than you can handle. I hope that you don't believe that's true because it's really not. The second is when God shuts a door, he opens a window. The next is, hey, did you pray about that? Another might be, maybe God needed to get your attention. I know I've heard that one quite a bit, especially whenever I was a teenager. Oh, God's just trying to get your attention. That's why you're in all this trouble. Uh, We hear this one often. Even U2 has a song about it, that God works in mysterious ways. Usually when the times get really hard, a lot of people like to go around quoting Philippians 4.13, that you can do all things in Christ. Or even that uh, you might see that cross-stitched on a t-shirt or a pillow somewhere. And lastly, we've often heard, I could never go through what you're going through, however. And then there's a lot said after that. But when you hear these things, you probably just cringe inside. Your soul just dies a little bit. Instead of using these phrases or trying to talk our way through grief, what if we did tangible things like helping someone in their worst grief by maybe washing their laundry or offering to watch their children? What if we cooked them dinner or handwrote them a letter of encouragement? What Job really needed was friends who would have shouldered some of the burden he was feeling. He did not need friends to create imaginary sins or try to solve the mysteries of the universe on his behalf. Simply, he needed community. When I read this, I'm so reminded of the church's mission. That mission is that we need to shoulder grief with people who are hurting. And it's often in the space that others truly see Jesus. Carol Pipes once wrote, 
Sheep get a bad rap for their flock mentality, but God created them with an instinct to stick together as a means of survival. That instinct allows the lambs to flourish. Even sheep that are introduced to a new flock will follow the other sheep until they too recognize the shepherd. And whenever I read that, I think of this Job story. That the body of Christ is like the flock of sheep. We need to recognize the voice of the Savior. So we bring along non-believers and believers. We walk beside them. We lead them. We teach them. We always point the way to Jesus. But the hard reality in this is that we all need community. In fact, we need it desperately, especially in times of suffering. The body of Christ serves as a reminder to each of us that we need God and we need to live our lives like him. And I can't help but think that things might have went totally different in the Job story had his friends embraced him in this way instead of creating hypothetical sins for what he had done or how he must have done something really bad to deserve the punishment he was getting. And this probably makes us ask the question, how often have we condemned or blamed others for their suffering? And I know this one can be really hard, especially when you're driving in the car and you see, let's say, a panhandler on the side of the road or you see somebody who's homeless. Uh, maybe it's that member of your family who's never been able to get it right. Uh, or maybe it's that very judgmental parent Um, But whatever it might be, have we ever condemned others and blamed them and say they're the cause of all their suffering? Um, I know that the book of Job challenges that a little bit. Or also, how often have we pursued an answer rather than simply offering comfort? Instead of trying to fix everybody's problems all the time or all the things going on in their life, what if we were simply just there? The book of Job is a great challenge as well as comfort to the church. And I, I find it incredibly comforting because it's not our job to answer the mysteries of the universe. It's not our job to answer on God's behalf. It's simply our job to be present, to be active, to be his loving people. It is our job to be the hands and the feet of Christ. It is our job to trust God even when the road doesn't make any sense. So as we talked about in the beginning of this lesson, When you are hurting, do you tend to isolate yourself or reach out to others more? I know this can be a very difficult question, considering the response of Job's three friends in this. Now, later in the story, we'll get introduced to a fourth character. But for now, I know as you read this, you might think, man, I don't want to reach out to anybody else. Do you see what happened to Job when he did? But the reality is, what happened if we were around a great Christian community that was supportive, that was compassionate, that was caring, that was loving? How could it very well change your story? And also, how could it change theirs? Also, how did Jesus model for us a way to help others in their grief? And we can come up with so many examples here. We can think of Jesus comforting the Samaritan woman at the well. We can think of Jesus comforting the disciples or comforting children whenever people won't let them come to him. Or even really stressed out disciples or Peter after he denies him three different times. We see all kinds of stories here where Jesus often models a way to help others in their grief by not really ever saying he was going to fix their problems. He simply was there. And also, have you ever experienced a friend coming alongside you in a hard time that made a real impact on your ability to walk through it? And I think of 
again, all kinds of uh, examples and stories here. But it truly makes all the difference. And I think the caution in the Job story is if we're really honest, many of us probably have friends that kind of act a lot like Job's friends. They try to fix our problems for us or tell us what to do or all kinds of things. But they probably don't just sit there and are a great comfort in suffering. And think back to that time that that friend came alongside you in a hard time. In what ways could you do that for someone else this week? So I know as we kind of wrap up week three of pieces, I know that the Job story is a difficult story really for us to kind of wrap our mind around. It's difficult to to think about a man who lost everything. He had lost his wealth. He lost uh, his family. Uh, he even lost his his entire children as a roof collapsed on them in one day from a windstorm. Um, and I just think about what incredible grief he was going through. And really, I, I can't imagine it. However, though, Job's immediate response to God was worship. And I know that as I think about that as we go throughout this week, I think about what an incredible opportunity we have that even in the midst of our suffering, our grief, our tragedy, our heartbreak, that we too have an opportunity to worship God and trust Him, knowing that He knows better than us, knowing that He loves us, knowing that He is with us. I hope this has brought you some encouragement and comfort today. And again, thank you for joining us for week three. Feel free to leave any comments uh, or questions for us uh, in the comment section, or feel free to join us on the Salvation Army of Hot Springs, Arkansas Facebook page. Um, We have a lot of updates there that we would like to, uh, to get you in contact with. But again, thank you for joining us for week three. We will catch you next week. Take care and God bless. Hello, I hope you're doing well today. Thank you for joining us for week four of our pieces, the Book of Job series. The big idea is that this series really serves as a snapshot to the Book of Job. We hope to provide comfort and encouragement to anyone experiencing a difficult circumstance. The question is, have you ever felt broken? Or have you ever wondered why things turned out the way they did? Job's story is often our story, if we're honest. And yet in the midst of pain and suffering, We can trust in the power of God. And so join us this week for Pieces Week 4. I know that our scripture this week is going to be out of Job chapter 19, which really talks about big things like doubt and depression, but it also talks about uh, prayer and trust as well. And so like Job, sometimes we experience doubt and depression and even pain. But despite those difficult moments, we still can trust God because he is our redeemer. And we're going to look at that directly in Job chapter 19. But before we do, it was once said by Tim Keller that you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And so kind of keep that quote in mind as we read Job chapter 19. We're going to be reading out of the New International Translation. And this is what it says. 
Job replied, how long will you torment me and crush me with your words? He's talking to his three friends here, the same three friends that we talked about last week. Ten times you have now reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. And we'll kind of skip through some of these verses because they kind of talk a lot about the same type thing, about his friends really creating all these hypothetical sins of things that he supposedly has done, even though Job was blameless and innocent and he didn't do those things. But we get all the way down later in this to verse 25, and then Job takes a very short turn here and says something very different. He says in verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And we just kind of think about that for a minute. Think about what Job has went through up until this point. Job has lost everything. He's lost his family. He's lost, in some cases, his good health. He's lost his entire wealth. He's lost his estate. He literally is a man with nothing but ashes and sackcloth. And yet he says in verse 25, in the midst of his three friends that are just tormenting him, he even says in the New International uh, Version um, that they're just blowing hot air. But we see here in verse 25, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. Even after my body has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes and not another, how my heart yearns within me. And then we go a little bit towards the end uh, to verse 30, and he says this, If you say, How will we hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him? You should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. And again, we see Job kind of comparing some ideas here against his punishment and against what we're going to refer to uh, as uh, retribution, or really this ancient concept of retribution that we're going to look at. So in our past few weeks, we've really kind of looked at how uh, the book of Job really serves to answer a few questions. Uh, the first question it looks to answer is, is God just? Is he fair? Is he loving? Is he powerful? That's kind of that first question that's really brought up in the debate uh, between Job and his friends. The second question that we see is, does God run the universe on a strict principle of justice? Is really that second question that they're answering or asking a lot. And lastly, the third, maybe most difficult one to ask is, how is Job's suffering to be explained? I mean, we see a man who was blameless, he was innocent. Uh, we see this heavenly uh, courtroom kind of scene where God gives Satan uh, leeway to try Job. Um, the Lord even says, hey, I know this guy who's blameless and innocent. Have you considered my servant Job? And so there's some big assumptions that we have to draw as we move through this book. Um, like Job, we have to ask, is God just? Is he fair? Does God run the universe on the principle of justice or does he not? And also, is suffering in the world explained? I know that um, really I love the book of Job because it really deals with some of life's hardest questions. But let's kind of get back to the debate and dialogue between Job and his three friends. Um, and really, um, 
the scripture that we read really is Job's interaction with one of the three called Bildad. But we have to remember that the three friends that he's talking to are the total best and brightest minds of Eastern thought and culture. And so we see that uh, the first one here um, that he talks to in several chapters, uh, Eliphaz actually emphasizes something specifically when he's talking to Job. He's emphasizing God's justice and his purity, or in essence, the holiness of God. And he says, God must be just, and Job, you're getting what you deserve because you must have sinned and you don't know it. Now, that's an interesting thing that we have to draw from his dialogue with Ephipaz. We get later on to Bildad, which is where we're reading now, which is the second one of his friends. And really, Bildad is interesting because he kind of appeals to tradition and orthodox doctrine. Basically, that we look back into history and see how God was, and therefore, that's what we should expect. So if we look back and see that God was all loving and all uh, concerning, um, and that he works in our best interest, then we can serve that. But if God is judgmental, well, then we should follow that suit too. And lastly, his last friend, Zophar, actually is more of a rationalist a little bit. He reasons that Job's punishment was no less than can what to be reasonably expected, that it is what it is, it's just life, which quite honestly doesn't make anybody feel better, does it? And so, and we see three very different responses here. Um, and we haven't quite got to chapter 32 where we introduce our fourth character, um, which is Elihu, but we're not going to necessarily talk about that one this week. That's going to be for next week. But I just want you to imagine for a moment, Job, imagine that you've lost it all and your faith is being radically tested. Would we cry out like Job does in verse 25 that I know my Redeemer lives. I know I will see him. In essence, my soul yearns for my Creator. That's so interesting. Because we see that Job's whole argument in his book, and we see it a little bit here in this week's study, is Job is always asserting his innocence, that he hasn't done anything wrong. But the implication we usually draw from the book of Job is that his suffering is not divine justice. So Job comes to two conclusions, and we can jump to these two. The first conclusion is that maybe God doesn't run the world according to justice. And the second is, well, maybe God is unjust and he's the reason for my suffering. Job actually says that later in the book. Then his friends enter the scene, and they keep saying something actually totally opposite. They say, God is just, and that God does run the world according to justice. And because of that, Job, you must have sinned. You must have forgot something. Literally, maybe one of your sons did something and you forgot to repent on his behalf. We see all kinds of things really happen here. And then in verse 32, in next week's message, we'll see something very different. But we have to consider some of these thoughts. Because, quite honestly, in our modern context, we tend to do the same thing. We think, if I'm a really good Christian, I'm working really hard, that... God's going to give me something special. That he's only going to give me good things if I put in good things. And that maybe wicked people or people that do badly, well, God will give them something bad. 
And we really can't draw that conclusion when we read the book of Job, because Job is wisdom literature, and therefore it's trying to teach us a lesson, very similarly to how the book of Ecclesiastes would, um, or even the book of Song of Songs. But we actually see here that this book is so unique in the Bible, because it actually goes on to say, well, just because you're wicked doesn't necessarily mean you'll get bad things, but it also goes on to say that even if you do only righteous things, that you'll get good things. It's, it's really quite interesting. But I want you to hear a testimony um, from someone uh, um, that you might know, and her name is Helen uh, Resevere. And she actually was a missionary uh, back in the 1960s. Uh, she's originally from Ireland, and uh, she was doing some missionary work. And this is her testimony, her words. And she says this, she says, I wasn't praying, I was beyond praying. Someone back home was praying earnestly for me. If I'd prayed any prayer, it would have been, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And suddenly, there was God. I didn't see a vision, I didn't hear a voice. I just knew that with every ounce of my being, that God was actually really there. God in all his majesty and power, he was with me. His stretched out arms were extended to me. He surrounded me with his love and he seemed to whisper to me, 20 years ago you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? Now before we go any further in this testimony, it's interesting to note that she was actually in prison for multiple years where pretty much on the daily she was beaten and she was raped by some people that she was trying to minister to. And this is what she says a little bit later about does she want to be a missionary? Her response is, it's fantastic to be a missionary, the privilege of being identified with our Savior. As I was driven down the short corridor to the room that I so typically knew, it was as though he clearly said to me, these are not your sufferings. They're not beating you. These are my sufferings. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. And an enormous relief swept over me. One word became unbelievably clear, and that word was privilege. He didn't take away pain or cruelty or any humiliation. No, in fact, they were all still there. But now it was somehow different. It was with him. It was for him. It was in him. He was actually offering me the privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of his suffering. So in the weeks of imprisonment that followed in the subsequent years of continued service, looking back, I have tried to count the cost, but I could only find it swallowed up in privilege. The cost suddenly seems very small and transient in the greatness and permanence of that privilege. So our question to us at the end of all this is can you and will you believe it and enter into the privilege of God? And as we kind of think about that, it's, it's so interesting to think about. We don't think about suffering typically as a privilege. We don't think about it as a blessing. Usually most of us think about suffering as how can I get as far away from suffering as I possibly can. It's not, it's not, it's not comfortable. It doesn't feel good. Uh, in some cases it's costly. We don't like suffering. But in the book of Job, we're invited into suffering. 
And even in this testimony, we heard that suffering can be a privilege. I don't imagine I'm probably, as I say this, getting a whole lot of like thumbs up likes uh, right now, but um, Paul talks quite a bit about this in the New Testament, about we can be invited to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Um, as a Salvation Army officer, when we were commissioned, this actually was our sessional verse um, about sharing in Christ's suffering, being counted as one of his, uh, to become like him in his death. And I think about that and what an opportunity that Job had because the entire book of Job, even though it has so many questions and some of which it doesn't answer, there's always this invitation to trust God. There's always this invitation that regardless of whatever I see right now, whatever I don't understand, whatever doesn't quite make sense, whatever I can't quite work out, that God is with me and I can trust him. And we see this totally. And we'll see it later in the book whenever Job finally gets fed up with his three friends. He says, I'm done with you guys. Another friend enters the scene. And Job finally demands, God, I want you to answer for yourself. And actually in Job verses 38, he does that. God actually takes Job on a virtual tour of the entire universe and shows him different things and talks to him. Um, he, he shows him beasts called the behemoth and the leviathan. But really, the question is, that Job's asking this whole time, is why is there suffering in the world? And basically, God's response is this. We live in an amazing world that is not designed to prevent suffering. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Um, but that's kind of the answer Job gets. And that's really the answer that we also get, too. That really the point of Job is that suffering will exist but God is with us. I mean, God is with us. His name is even Emmanuel, God with us. So as we kind of think about um, wrapping this up um, this evening, I want you to kind of think about a few things. I want you to think about a few questions. The first question is, do you believe that God has been fair in your life? If you answer no to that question, you might be in the same boat as Job. Um, and maybe ask yourself, why do you feel like that? Why do you feel like God is maybe out to get you or that he's not quite fair or even good or all-powerful? Um, the next question we have to consider is, do we consider suffering a privilege? That one's a really hard question to answer. And lastly, I think the last question we could ask is, are we okay like Job to be able to be real with God and tell him honestly how we feel? But also, um, are we okay with some questions that are left unanswered? I think that Job does an incredible, beautiful job of this, that it really in a lot of ways creates a lot of questions and not so many answers because we do see that Job is so different than any other book in the Bible. First of all, it doesn't use any Jewish or Israelite characters, it's set in a place called Uz that actually is very, very far away from Israel and Jerusalem. And lastly, there's no real clear historical setting in the book. There isn't any. And the reason for that is it's all intentional because the author wants us to focus on the questions being asked of the book and not so much on the things that we can figure out. It really wants us to figure out or look at questions surrounding Job's suffering.
And so I think a good place for us to start is look at maybe what you have going on in your own life. Look at your your suffering, your blessings, and think about how can God use these for his glory? How can he use these to bring about Christ-likeness in us? How can he use these to bring others to a knowledge of knowing him? And so I do know that I hope as you read the book of Job and you walk with us in this study that you're really feeling this heavy tug of an invitation to trust God's wisdom. Because just like life, there's so many questions that we don't know the answer to. There's so many things that we have to wrestle with. And Job really provides us a very clear way how to do that. That maybe it's from a place of humility, talking with God, being honest, um, and only looking for his approval. Not necessarily the approval of the friends around us or the possessions that we have, uh, but in a place of sackcloth and ashes, it's an earnest seeking after his presence. It's a, it's a in the midst of everything bad going on in my life, it's I know that my Redeemer lives, that incredible truth that he shares with us in verse 25. And so I hope that uh, the study this week has uh, provided you an opportunity to ask some questions. Um, I hope it also invites you to really check out the book of Job as it's a really cool, incredible book. And also, too, I really hope it, it causes you to, as a Christian, to be okay with questions. It's okay not to know. It's okay to have some divine mystery uh, uh, with God moving through life. Um, and so, if you have any questions, drop them in the comment section uh, on our Facebook page under the post. And again, thank you for joining us for week four of our podcast pieces. Have a great night. Take care.